The world around us is changing faster than ever before. From automation, artificial intelligence, big data, geolocation, to every aspect of how we work and live. This includes data. Welcome Welcome. to Data Gurus Podcast. Our mission is to bring you a real-life perspective on what's happening in the industry and how successful companies and individuals in this niche navigate through the sea of change. Encouraging you to be bold, be be brave, and be fearless. Let's navigate the data ecosystem together. Welcome Welcome, welcome. to the Data Gurus Podcast. Okay, I am so excited to be at this point where I can introduce to you the first part of a four-part series regarding data quality. The series is sponsored by Imperium, and really, it's been spearheaded by Charlie O'Leary, who's the CEO of Imperium. Charlie, as many of you know, has not spent all his time in the MR industry and really has spent time in adjacent industries. So he's helped me recruit guests. And really, the main purpose of the series is to share perspectives and best practices from other industries, and specifically, how they are dealing with data quality. In this episode, we speak with Matt Stout, who you'll hear from in a few minutes, who is the CEO of Venture Development Group. It's a big data consulting firm, tons of data they deal with, and essentially they rationalize, normalize huge data sets, traditional as well as alternative data sets. And you get a better sense of the considerations when thinking about bringing structure to all this data, how it ties together. And you get a deeper relationship of how the big data industry is dealing with the relationship with price, quality, and how it actually might vary depending on use cases. I learned so much in this episode. I hope you do. Take a listen. Welcome, you guys. Thank you, Seema. Yeah, thanks. Very glad to be here. I love this idea that Charlie approached me with a couple of months ago now, Charlie, and it was kind of bringing different perspectives to the table to specifically the market research and analytics to industry from other industries. And so Matt, appreciate you taking the time to kind of share a little bit about your background and perspective as it relates to data and data quality. First off, I think it'd be great if you could just share a little bit about your company and what purpose it serves in your industry. Sure. So Venture Development Center has been around since 1996. And I guess the best way to look at us is we have formed an organization that works in the big data market space, primarily with traditional data and alternative data. And what we have done is assembled about 190 relationships with organizations that have these assets, again, traditional or alternative, and we look to bring those assets to the marketplace that we've created where buyers of data are there. And and those buyers can be the traditional players themselves. They can be brands. They can be professional service organizations. So we help a myriad of companies along those lines, basically understanding these assets and figuring out how they might be used in particular use cases, thereby creating licensing events and making these matches, if you will. Got it. And give us a little bit of background as to how you define traditional data and alternative data. Yeah. So traditional data in the grand scheme of things, as it pertains to my viewpoint, has to do with uh, what you would see as the demographic data, the existing data sets that uh, have been around for 30 years. So mailing address, you know, business name, whether if you're talking in the sector business name, 
contact name, email address, things along those lines, firmographic data. As you start stepping out outside of that traditional scheme into alternative data, you start looking at behavioral activities. So any kind of signal data. So it might be geolocation, it might be search, it might be transactional, it may be crowdsource. So there's about seven or eight different variants that we use to basically corral that type of data and put it into kind of a listing of how that data can be utilized. Beyond that, it's the use case, but core to alternative data assets in our area are companies that are not necessarily data companies. Really what they are, organizations that generate a massive amount of data, and it's usually as a derivative of their core activities. Can you just give listeners an idea of how much data you actually represent in the marketplace, just you know, by way of background? Oh, it's tremendous. I mean, terabytes of data. We have access to transactional data files that are that cover the spectrum of all types of levels of activity, whether they're consumer or business. We have, for argument's sake, some geolocation assets that are just you know, terabytes of data, some of them on a daily basis. So it's the raw data that's available from some of these suppliers is just immense. And that's, again, that's just one sector, geolocation. If you look at search, it's quite similar. Right. And when you, I mean, obviously you guys have had the history of, you know, understanding the trends in data, 1996 to now, there's been a lot of change in the marketplace. What do you think is the biggest driver of change as it relates to, you know, data? And now I think people are saying data is the new oil. What's your perspective on that? Yeah, well, I guess the right way to answer that would be to say, if, if you go back 10, 15, 20 years, a lot of this was done modeled. So organizations, again, the traditional players, they would bring in unique assets. And with those insights, they would be able to construct very specific models. But in fact, they were models, right? With these alternative assets that are out there, that's not necessarily the case anymore. Now, you can have these models, but they can be incredibly enhanced by these actual behaviors, right? These actual activities. So that's, you know, at the forefront, that's one of the big things because it's usually those assets as well. And I use that word assets a lot, but really it's the data sets, right? But those assets are enormous. And if they can be tapped the right way, the value that they can be providing to marketing, sales, or operations is, can be transformative. So I guess going from models, there's an acceptability of potentially some level of, you know, it's not 100% accurate to moving towards a place where you have almost census data, right, on a population that you're thinking about. What's the threshold of, you know, acceptability in terms of making sure that the data is accurate, if you will? Well, that's one of the things, right? So when you start looking at models, it's not, I don't know necessarily it would be a question of whether it's accurate or not. I think it's the timeliness of it, right? Okay. The behavioral and signal aspects that we're talking about, it's immediate. And if you can gain that access, you can react quickly with it, right? So there starts becoming other concerns along those lines when you start thinking about privacy compliance, especially in the world that we live in today. But having access to that and using it properly is, as I said before, it's transformative. Mm -hmm. And so let's talk about data quality in your world. I'm sure you have this conversation many, many times over and during the course of a day. Give us your best definition of data quality. Good data quality, I should say. Yeah, data quality, and that's wide open you know, spaces when people talk about that. But in our world, the way that we look at it is 
for us to represent an organization, they need to be in a position where the data they're collecting, they're getting in in a compliant fashion, right? So we have to be comfortable that the data that's coming in is being captured on an ongoing basis and there's no issues with it. We look at it also from a perspective of how long has it been collected? Is there some kind of historical representation there? Because people may have great data but that they're collecting, but if they don't have some sort of history associated with it, it's really hard to test. So compliance, historical, and then we move into in the foreseeable future. Are they going to be able to collect this data for the foreseeable future? And the, the logic around that is we don't want to represent any file that we could bring in and a potential buying entity within our portfolio ingests the data, starts utilizing the data, and all of a sudden it's no longer available. So once we get through those aspects of it, then the next question is, okay, how does it measure up? How unique is it? Are there data points of value that are within that data set that are compelling? And if they are, how unique are they? And how do they measure up against other things that are in the marketplace, whether, you know, represented by us or not. Got it. But during the core, I mean, when you enter the conversation of data quality, is it really about sharing the best practices of what that data source does to ensure the four key criteria that you just talked about? Yeah, For us initially, yeah, I guess the way I'd answer that is not uncommon for my organization to speak with 10, maybe 15 companies on a monthly basis that have what is considered unique data. We probably are only really able to engage with three on a monthly basis, right? And, And the rationale for that is that some one aspect of those criteria I mentioned, they don't measure up. That's not to say the company is not credible or that it's not a legitimate organization, but some aspect of what we're seeing with the data is just not measuring up. They may have great data. It may be captured at a great volume. They may be getting it for the long term, but they may not have any history. So for us, we have to wait for them to build that historical representation up so that when we bring it out for companies to test and that testing aspect data evaluation is a critical component, we need to make sure there's something there that's valuable for them to actually be able to get a result set back. Got it. And what's the relationship of price versus quality? No, that's, <laughs> <laughs> if I had an open canvas before, now I have an open, I have a whole, you know, mural. it's all over the place. And one of the biggest challenges that we face there is companies, especially in the alternative space, when we speak with them, say, hey, you have this data set that's interesting. And specifically, these data points you're collecting are really compelling. And we believe they can be used in these specific use cases. And we'll outline those use cases. And then we usually back that up with each use case. We come back and say companies that we know of, organizations in our portfolio, the big buying entities of of this type of data or XYZ company. And that's usually when people start seeing all types of dollar signs and start adding in commas. And I say that because we represent a lot of large organizations. And when companies that are on the sell side hear that, sometimes the, the number just increases, right? So what the reality of this is, it's really the uniqueness of the data, the completeness of the data. And by that, I mean, when we look at data sets, we're looking at the what's the layout, what data points are being collected, what points, and then what's the coverage of those key data points. So I've said several times already, data point of value. And in my, in my world, that basically means 
this one piece of information is incredibly compelling. And so long as that data point is has a high fill rate, you know, that means there's something of real value there. So it's a combination of you know, value is really a combination of that those data points that I'm speaking about, the ones that are really stand out how defined they are, what the depth of coverage is. And then the next component of it is how, what use cases can it be used in? Where is it permissible to use it? And if all of those things measure up, we usually have companies that are very interested in acquiring that type of data and melding it into data sets that they have or solutions or product offerings that they're bringing to market. Hey, Matt, one of the things that I know that you deal with different folks that come and talk to you, and, and we see it in the MR space as well, is that there's constant price pressure, right? And that's driven by folks that, you know, aren't as focused on quality or making the data as actionable, right? So they have lots of data, but it's not as actionable in terms of delivering results for the customer. Is that something that you all see and is something as part of those metrics that you're using towards trying to guide your customers to say, yeah, I know so-and-so might have a lot of data, a tenth of the price, but there's a reason why it's a tenth of a price. Yeah. I mean, look, that's very relevant, right? I mean, the data, the information field, the data field is one that necessarily a lot of times doesn't have a great reputation because of that, right? Data starts somewhere and is continually harvested and brought forward, you know, where it ends up, who takes it from whom and is reselling it and doing so at a tenth of what the value is. When you see things like that, you have to start thinking, you know, do they really have the rights to use this data? So I think the industry as a whole it has become more tuned in on that. But look, it remains that rem- your point is valid, Charlie. That remains a component of this. I mean, we're, we're always very cautious about that. And if, you know, it's kind of like the old saying, if it seems too good to be true, it's probably not. So we're very cautious about that. And then the companies that we represent on the buy side were part of our process there on the, you know, as a consultant, as a strategic advisor is to say, hey, be cautious here because, if we know the company, we can be specific about it. But if we're not, we can say, look, this just doesn't measure up to what is out in the marketplace, right? Something doesn't smell right. So yeah, that's ongoing for sure. You know, I was just going to follow up with that. I was curious if how many times sometimes you've said, hey, be cautious about that. They say, okay, I'm still going to go buy it. And then they come back. How many times do they come back to you? <laughs> well, you know, it depends on the organization. We're real fortunate then that we have large accounts. And many times they may even just say the name of a company to me. And anyone who hears this that knows me will know what I'm talking about. I just kind of shoot a sideways glance. I won't say anything necessarily. <laughs> but usually that glance is enough to say like, you know, danger will Robinson, you know? Yeah. So. Are you seeing that trend? Like you work with, I mean, just to share with our listeners, you work with Fortune 500 companies, right? That ingest this data and kind of integrate it into business processes. Have you seen a shift or a trend here where, you know, for a while people were kind of buying into this lower pricing and now taking a step back and saying, wait, I need to think about this a little bit more and understand what I'm truly buying? Yeah, so that's an interesting question, right? So yes, we deal with you know Fortune 500 organizations and globally, right? We're not just representing data sets in the North America. So yes, we have those clients and we have a lot of mid-tier ones. I generally would say over the last number of years, the larger organizations have been very cautious about you know what they're doing with first-party data, second-party data, third-party data. And when we're bringing these assets in or there's any question, 
historically they stayed away from it. And some of the smaller organizations or and we work with startups too, right? Both on the buy and sell side of data. You know, they sometimes say, Hey, look, I can get this data at a fraction of the price and we're going to be using it for our, you know, sales promotions and things like that. Sometimes it's just a decision on the price point. But effectively, I think most organizations are very cautious about that today. And we certainly weigh in on that side of question across the board, whether it's the asset, the company, or, you know, how the asset is being created. We try to be very upfront about things that they need to be prepared to watch for. And my guess is, my hypothesis is that depending on the use case of the data, that also drives, you know, how much of a premium or consideration they might have tied to price and ultimately quality. Yeah, without question. I mean, you know, we deal with companies that use data for marketing and sales, and we deal with organizations that will take the exact same data and they're looking at it for risk and flood. Um, the use cases are worlds apart, right? But it's the same data. It's just worlds apart. So the value for one might be a tenth the price of what the other one was paying just because how it's being utilized and whether there's a resale involved. So yeah, that's very true. And Matt, when you talk to these Fortune 500 companies, what's their tolerance for you know, having a record, if you will, or a data asset that might have some component of bad data? Well, here's, here's the way I'd answer that, too. It depends on the company and the use case, right? So if you're looking for, if we're th- thinking about organizations that collect a lot of disparate data, they sometimes may see a unique element within the data set that we're talking about. And that in and of itself might be relevant and valuable to them because they can bring it in and cross-check or... Yeah, and corroborate it and or meld that data point in. So it's really a question of the test. I mentioned that before, right? Testing data evaluation. Yeah, that's critical for us. So in all instances, we engage in, there's a process that says the data is going to be provided for some sort of proof of concept. Maybe it's in a specific MSA. Sometimes it's uh, two or three MSAs or a specific state. And it's utilized in the framework of what that use case is defined as, right? So we don't go outside the restrictions of that, but we try to allow the buying entity to fully utilize the data to see just what kind of lift they're going to get. And sometimes that's easy, right? Sometimes it's a file that they're just looking to increase the number of valid email addresses they have, right? That's generally a fairly easy thing to do, but sometimes it's much more complex depending upon the type of data set we're talking about and the actual uh, data points involved. What I love about your process is it's defensible. You can actually show metrics around what you investigate and kind of evaluate each of these data partners on. Yeah, it's it's methodical. Yeah, by design, it has to be, right? It has to be, yeah. It's not we leave ourselves exposed and our clients exposed as well. And look, there's an example there I can give that, you know, to validate that, right? So back to the concept about emails, a lot of organizations are looking to embed or enhance their systems with more active and accurate emails. That's been the case for many, many years. So uh, there was a a real example where we had a really interesting data set that we had that had great email addresses and had performed terrifically in other engagements. We brought it forward to a buying client. They tested it. They saw like a 35% lift during the test. And then they took the file in and the lift was only about 12%. 
And so the immediate question was, well, did the organization that sold us the data, you know, build up the test file so that it looked like we were going to get this great lift? And in fact, now we're getting a third of it, right? And so immediately, right, we were able to answer because we knew the source, something was wrong. You should have seen, a, you know, 28%, that might be acceptable, but something is wrong. And we were able to determine that they just give them the most updated file. And that happens a lot, believe it or not. Even in test scenarios, we find that if something doesn't perform the way that we expect it to perform, we're able to go back and say something's wrong here. But that's just after you know, two decades of having experience with some of these new assets. How do you think privacy impacts your area of the world? No, oh, privacy is huge right now. You know, I mean, look, privacy has been a big thing for a long time. I think there are a number of companies that have pretty much ignored it. I think recent and, you know, a year ago, news activity going on, Cambridge Analytica, right, Los Angeles suing IBM, CCPA, GDPR, these all are adding into the overall view of concern. And as a result, most organizations on the buy side are being really cautious about the data sets they ingest because, to my earlier point, they don't want to go through a process, bring an asset in, and then have it not be available to them because they've changed the data amalgamation of what they're creating, right? That's not a good thing. So as a result, everybody's being really cautious now about the data sets they even investigate. On the flip side, or like when I think about the positive side of it is it makes everybody rise and kind of prevents the junk to get out of the system, if you will, or bad actors in some ways, because you have to have the wherewithal to comply with a lot of these policies and legislation. Well, I think the answer is, and there are probably people who will hear this who will (laughs) shriek that I'm saying this, but I think generally there probably needs to be, you know, a countrywide level of legislation, right? One of the challenges that you face with What's going on with CCPA is as each state decides that they too want to do this, right. how do you comply with all the myriad of nuanced changes that are going to exist state to state? I just think that in and of itself is a challenge, but your point is valid, right? It changes the architecture of the landscape and it basically people who are real bad actors are going to have a much harder time having their data ingested by anyone. Correct. Yeah. Charlie, that sounds familiar, right? and from your perspective what does success look like to you like how do you know you have clients that you sell data assets to they ingest it how do you say on a good day you know we've met the data quality requirements today for our clients well usually it starts again back to that test so if we see that there's been some kind of discernible lift that's usually a good thing for us if they come back and they're able to the buy side now, right? Buying side. And it's interesting for me because I represent the sell side, like the broker who lists the house and sells the house. But on the buy side, as long as the organization there feels confident that they got data that had good integrity and when they did the manipulation with it and evaluation, they were able to see some lift. That's usually a good feeling, right? Because we're not wasting anyone's time and we're actually bringing value. So that's usually the first aspect of it. And then when you actually see it in production, and you see that they're getting a you know a lift in response or you know cost per acquisition is down that also is a pretty good indicator and the best indicator is when they come back and they want to renew the contract that's right <laughs> well, but you make an important point and that is you understand the use case of the data and you understand what the client is expecting to see and 
there's a transparent dialogue about the expectations of the data. Yeah, and that's look, one of the value adds that you know venture development serves, right? That's people recognize that aspect of what we can bring to the equation. So that's exactly accurate. Yeah. Yeah, it's a big deal because otherwise it's defined by any one user of a data set to say this is good or bad without having that agreement as to what the expectations are and how and what good performance looks like. Yeah, exactly right. I just had one, and I don't know if you actually have an answer to this or not, but one of the things that we've had some experience with together has been some businesses where they have a large data science team and they have a huge data lake where they dump lots of data in. What I found with those folks, I thought they'd be less concerned about data quality, right? Because they had such a large data set. But what they said is because their data set is so large, it costs them a fortune to get bad data back out. And so that's where they're extra sensitive about, you know, what data gets put into their systems. Has anybody ever shared with you what the cost to remove bad data is? Not in dollar signs, but usually, and look, that's a great topic, right? Because usually I go, so I'm going to meld a bunch of different points that I've said so far, right? I talked about how companies with alternative data usually see a company, a large company, and they tell us they want 10x of what they believe the data is worth because it's, you know, IBM buying it, right? So the reality is, to the point that Charlie's making for our feedback to them is get the data in. If the data tests well and the company ingests it, it's nearly impossible for them to unlink it, right? It's a very difficult process. So your point is valid, Charlie. Once it's ingested, it's in there. It's not coming out. So that's why that test and data evaluation is so critical. And the performance of the data is one aspect, but then the delivery and the ability for the organization selling it to actually comply with the requirements that have been put upon them on delivery terms and things like that are also key. But once you get through that, and that data is in, it's very difficult to extract it. Even if you can find a competitive file that has offers a similar asset type or a similar set of data components, it's really hard. About the only way I've seen a big file uh, switched in is that the file layout is almost identical or it can be you know, manipulated a bit beforehand. So yeah, I don't know in the way of dollars and cents, but I do know just from actual logistics, it's nearly impossible. Well, I wanted to follow up on that. It sounds like these companies are putting millions of dollars to ingest this data and build infrastructure around it. Is that a fair comment or? I think it is. I mean, you know, when you look at storage, storage is getting cheaper. And then you look at things like Amazon has AWS, right? They're putting all these data assets out there. Snowflake is doing the same thing. And and there are a bunch of other exchanges out there. When you look at this, I mean, there's just a myriad of data points that are available from a myriad of different data companies from now, a myriad of data exchanges, right? So as you bring that data in and meld it into your solutions, whether they're on-prem or you're doing it through the cloud, once you've melded that data in, it's really difficult to extract it. So as a result, some of the clients that we have on that buy side that are really interested in these unique assets and that they are really cautious, they go through, it's not a week, two weeks, it's not even you know two months, it's sometimes six or seven months of testing before they make the decision to actually bring the data in. And at that point, that's when the discussion around pricing starts, right? So it's a long process. It could take 10 or 11 months. Yeah. Well, it's refreshing though, the focus on the quality and really making sure that it's sound and it's going to fit their use case. Yeah. This was great. Anything else you guys want to add or comment on? Great. Thank you, Seema. Thank you, Matt. Oh, my pleasure. 
thanks for tuning in this week. I, again, want to do a shout out to Imperium for being the sponsor of this series. It's the first of four episodes. I did want to share with you that Imperium actually is offering a free data clinic. It's fast, it's free, and you get basically a quick sense of how your data or your panel data compares to industry metrics. There's no obligation and there's no charge. So if you want to hear more about that, visit the website www.imperium.com. Don't forget to tune in next week where I have part two of this data quality series. I speak to Anders Ekman, who is the CEO of V12. B12 integrates first-party and third-party data to improve customer acquisition and customer retention. Lots of interesting insight and parallels to our industry that we can take away from. If you have any questions regarding this episode or others in the series, feel free to email me at SIMA, S-I-M-A, at infinity-the-number-two.com. Until then, have a great week and see you on the other side. Thank you for tuning in to Data Guru's podcast. This episode has ended, but your exploration doesn't have to. Head over to www.dataguruspodcast.com and access all the resources and links mentioned in today's show. You'll also find bonus content available to our podcast listeners exclusively. That's www.dataguruspodcast.com. Until next time, be bold, be brave, and be fearless.